A very good morning to you. Welcome into today's programme. One Galway deputy calls for critical infrastructure project, projects to be exempt from the emissions target. We're looking at that on today's programme. Also today, we're speaking and talking about home care and how the list could be wiped out if we could just get adequate staffing in place. The Irish Hairdressers Federation, they want uh, VAT left at 9%. President Joe Biden is receiving a, an invitation to County Galway. It should have arrived on his desk uh, today. We'll talk about that uh, later on in the programme. And also St. Bridget's Day. Happy St. Bridget's Day to all. We're looking at that extensively on today's programme. We're with you right through until 12 midday. Good morning to you. Now, there's been a flurry of activity in relation to the decision by Embroar Planola uh, by the courts to refer the um, outer ring road of Galway City back to Embroar Planola. Um, but there's concerns over what might happen and might not happen when it comes to climate change legislation. Um, I was in Dublin yesterday. I did not get to see the primetime programme last evening. I've recorded it. So, I mean, anybody sending in comments on that, we can read them. Uh, but I didn't get to see it. Uh, but... I want to go to Deputy Eamon O'Keefe, who joins me on the line, because he's going to talk to his parliamentary party today. And he's putting forward uh, a counter-proposal in relation to an all-of-government uh, support. He joins me on the line today. Deputy O'Keefe, good morning to you. Good morning to you, Keith. Thanks for joining us uh, today on the programme. Now, you feel quite strongly about infrastructure in this country that needs to be built and needs to be built quickly, including uh, the um, bypass for Galway, the outer city ring road here. Well, more importantly, I passionately believe and always have in coherent government policy. Mm -hmm. And the reality is there is only one government in the country. And I remember at times you might have had when I was Minister of Rural Development, because it goes across so many departments, uh, you might have had representatives from different departments there. And each would be fighting its own corner as if they were rival companies rather than agents of one government, which is the government is the 15 people at the cabinet table. And I used to say to them, look, there's only one government in this country and we have to act coherently. And I've never changed my mind on that. Now, we seem to have an incoherent policy on transport. Uh, On the one hand, the government approved the National Development Plan and that took climate into account and it includes the Galway Outer City Bypass, but it also... It also includes a lot of other roads. Now, it would appear that there's a difficulty with the climate action plan because that seems to be going in a contrary direction. We also have the situation where the Minister of Transport has ordered a review of a very new strategy that was only uh, published in 2016, a 20-year strategy for transport in Galway City, a comprehensive strategy that included active travel, that included public transport and included the road. Uh, and that's already been reviewed. And of course, as long as that's been reviewed, it'll be very difficult for the board plan Ola to make a final decision. Um, you also have the Climate Action Plan. And it seems that the Climate Action Plan didn't account for the projects in the NDP and that some of those, because they're going round towns rather than going straight through and bashing their way through the middle of town. Can you imagine if you're bashed away with a new road to the middle of town, the shortest route, the difficulty that would pose? Uh, so... It would appear that the Climate Action Plan didn't take into account that there will be uh, more uh, emissions in the short term. Now, I don't believe they'll be there in the long term because we'll get fossil-free vehicles. But in the short term, there will be more emissions if you go around the thing 
rather than go through a thing. Uh, and uh, they should have put in mitigating measures into the climate action plan, how we were going to achieve our targets, allowing for the implementation of the National Development Plan. Otherwise, you have totally incoherent government, and it's as if the 15 people at the table were all doing their own thing, and that we don't have a government anymore, and that, of course, is untenable. And is that your observation of the current government, then? Are you saying it's incoherent because Eamon Ryan is going one way and the other departments are going the other way? And also, can I just throw into this, when you say that the Minister for Transport has uh, ordered a review, um, are you concerned then that the, that review could be delayed and thereby Ambor Planola cannot make that decision that the courts have referred back to them? That's one issue. And the other issue is uh, that the climate action plans are a yearly or the action plan is a yearly plan and that could keep moving the goalposts. So you could wind up a bit like those stories we had when we were a child where you were told that there was a crack of gold at the end of the rainbow. And it was there, all right, but you could never find the end of the rainbow. And every time you went after the rainbow or found out where the end of the rainbow was, it had moved. And it seems that this is an, an, an eternally moving goalpost. Now, the government, and I mean the 15 people around the cabinet table, nobody else, they are the government. Constitutionally, they're the government. They have to make their mind up. Is it the National Development Plan or are they scrapping that by the back door? But it's time they told the people what they're doing. And that's what I'll be asking to tarnish this evening, Michal Martin, the leader of my party. What is the government policy? Now, I remember when this government was formed, I stood up in the parliamentary party and I said, if you go in with the Greens, they will strangle the Galway City Outer Bypass. And I absolutely accept the Greens are entitled to their view. But in the end of the day, when you're in government, the majority view trumps any individual view of any individual minister. And there are many decisions made at the cabinet table, and I was party to some, that you mightn't have liked. But once the decision was made, you had to go with the majority. And are you concerned then that there's a conflict between Eamon Ryan's thinking and what the rest of the cabinet have agreed to do? And what happens, I mean, if, if he refuses to toe the line as you're, as you're outlining to us there, that could bring down government. Well, so be it. I mean, I, you know, yeah, you're not going to get the Dublin minister. Somebody said to me um, about this one, the Dublin ministers, the Dublin based ministers are not going to bring down a government um, for uh, a city bypass in the west of Ireland. Well, first of all, this could affect, for example, the Galway to Limerick Road around the Dare. This could affect all sorts of roads around the country because the same principle is involved in most. Uh, bypasses of towns and villages. And Eamon Ryan was espousing bypasses himself. But inevitably, if you go around Mallow, you go around the Dare or these places, the, the roads that were going through the towns or villages was the straight road. And when you go out around the outskirts, you obviously add miles. And that would appear to possibly cause a problem because if the road is slightly longer, it means under current conditions, and I stress that, as long as we have fossil fuel vehicles, it does mean uh, extra emissions. Now, the obvious antidote to that, of course, is to rapidly bring in fossil-free uh, cars, which are would be electric, or other vehicles, which would be hydrogen. And Galway is progressing, and I am a huge proponent of the introduction of hydrogen for boats, for trains, for uh, heavy goods vehicles, etc., because it's a very efficient fuel, and it can be made safe. And we would see developments in that in the near future. But that's another day's work. So, but the reality is this has implications for the whole 
National Development Plan, which is a government plan. And what I'm saying to you is you cannot have incoherence in government. You cannot have government policies contradicting each other. And the government as a whole has to decide, you know, is it for their own national development plan or is it not? And if it is, how are they going to deal with climate in a way that's compatible with the national development plan? That's all I'm looking for. And you don't believe it is currently? Uh, no, I, I think there are anomalies there. Uh, I hope they're sorted out. I hope we get a clear way forward. Uh, I believe that if we want active travel and public transport in Galway, which we surely do, and if on the other hand we want the 80,000 people who are west of the Carrab River to be able to get to the rest of the country, not only to the east of Galway City, but to the rest of the country, uh, without having to go the whole way around Loch Carrab, uh, I think what we need to do is build the road around Galway and not force everybody from Connemara uh, who wants to go the direct route to the east. And it is noticeable where I live up in Cardamona that more and more people going to West Connemara are coming the long way round through uh, North Connemara to avoid having to go through the city because in many cases now in West Connemara it's actually quicker to avoid Galway City if you're coming down in the evening, for example, between 4 and 7 o'clock, you're probably quicker if you're going anywhere west of Mount Cross to come via Cornamona and keep away from the city totally, even though it is a longer route. So you're saying that uh, for people that are coming to the west of Ireland or going, say, to Clifton or going to Ballykinley or otherwise, uh, that they're better off to take the motorway down, uh, get off at Tume and then go across country uh, into Ballinrobe, upwards uh, into Cornamona uh, and onwards from there. Uh, yeah, I give you the timing. Uh, you don't have to go to Baton Road, but it doesn't even go shorter way. Absolutely adhering to the speed limit from the Ratmarasi Junction to Kurnamona Village is exactly an hour, and I have timed it endless times, and that's sticking to the speed limit. Uh, and it never makes any difference, really, what time of the day. You could leave at 8 o'clock in the morning going up. You don't hit brush hour traffic. And from there to Mount Cross, about 15, 20 minutes. So an hour and 20, we get you from Ratmarasi. Would an hour and 20 guarantee get you from Ratmarasi to Mam Cross going through the city at first hour in the evening? No, it wouldn't. Right? So my, I rest my case, and a lot of people have realised this, and you see more and more cars coming through Cornamona, which is grand. Uh, we have a good road through Cornamona, and they're more than welcome, but you know, that's burning even more. Uh, uh, fuel, yeah, because you're going the long way around. But can, can I just just an event, and we might finish out on this one? I actually think that this is an east versus west um, discussion that we're having, because I had to go to Nachtigar again today, and I had to do a drop off that took me thirty seconds to do, and I left the house at twenty five past seven, and I was, did the drop off in Nachtigar, and I was on the Rahun Road, and I didn't get here until quarter past eight. That run. If I'm coming into work in the morning time, it takes me 12 to 14 minutes to get into work in the morning time. That run took the guts of three quarters of an hour uh, or more. I, I think it's an insult to the people living in Nocticara, Barna um, and the rest of the, the, the West that they're stuck in cars in the morning time, sequence of lights, it's chock-a-block with cars and all they're trying to do is get to park more or somewhere else to get to work but they have to go through the city and they have to get stuck in it. Yeah, and I, I, I know people who, for example, are from uh, Connemara 
and they work in places like Athenrye, Clarenbridge, uh, all sorts of places to the east, and they have to come through the city. And all they're doing is clogging up and making the city dangerous in terms of over amount of traffic. Uh, where what we need in the city, as has been rightly pointed out, are cycleways and walking options and very good public transport options for those moving around within the city boundary. Mm. Uh, we had the debate last week, you and I, about more buses to places like Clifton, more trains, try get as many people into public transport. But there again, public transport's terribly dependent. And one of the reasons people uh, tend to take trains over buses is that trains have a free right-of-way and buses tend to get caught up into traffic because, you know, you have bus lanes parted away and so on, yeah. and the next thing they hit okay. the, 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 the log jam and they're caught again. Uh, and therefore, we need dedicated busways. But to do that in Galway, for example, you have to take out the Salmon Weir Bridge. Uh, already, uh, the O'Brien's Bridge doesn't have traffic uh, east to west. So that leaves you with the Wolf Tone Bridge down at Jury's Hotel and the Quincentennial for the 80,000 people Eddie. who are west, who want to go east, and all of the people of Ireland who are east who might want to go west, and lots of people have business going to Connemara. And we know that Connemara is losing business and losing attractiveness for, for companies and so on because of its inaccessibility. All right, we won't uh, sort of take a look. What time is that parliamentary meeting with uh, the Thorns? Oh, oh, our parliamentary party is every Wednesday night at half past six. Well, we'll see what comes out of that. Maybe Fine Gael will uh, table a similar motion. So at least you have two-thirds of the government. And they have a legal responsibility, as you said, those 15 people sitting around the table. David Eamon O'Keefe, thank you for joining us. Keith, I'm sick and tired of those people objecting, completely disregarding us in Connemara, as if we don't matter, this uh, caller said. And Keith, it's no wonder we're gone the way we are. It's 21 years ago that I received a letter stating that trial holds on my site uh, to see if ground is suitable. They should take a look at the traffic coming through Corbally and uh, through Bully Beg and through Kiron and onto the city via the Letra Road. It's um, crazy. I, I just, I just this morning just threw me over the edge, sitting in the car, listening to the radio and not moving. I mean, I was at the Rohan Cemetery. I came out from Remini Dog here. That's where I had to drop Katie's dog to. And I dropped the dog, came out again, 30 seconds, in and out. And all of a sudden, the traffic was up to Bremeny, and it took me forever to make my way down, to get onto the Rohan Road, to get over the bridge. And you say to yourself, really and truly. Galway Talks, in association with Tesco. Find our award-winning Irish ranges in store and online at tesco.ie. Now, there, there are some calls being made on the Minister for Social Protection, Heather Humphreys, to permit a temporary suspension of social welfare earning thresholds to allow home care workers just three more hours per week without losing social welfare payment. Do you know, red tape is going to kill this country eventually. Uh, Joseph Musgrave, CEO of uh, Home and Community Care Ireland, HCCI, uh, joins you on the line today. Uh, Joseph, good morning to you. Good morning. Thanks for joining us today. So the anomaly that's there with the threshold allows um, people who are on social welfare to work how many hours or earn how much money? Well, it's it, so it depends what sort of social welfare you're on. So if you're a job seeker, you can work for three days. It doesn't matter if you work one hour each day, you can only work on three days. Um, so that's one of the issues we have. And then 
if you're on a medical card or the working family payment, you're allowed to earn a certain amount after which there's a hard cutoff and you lose that benefit. So what we've said is we're all familiar. You know, I've been on the show and many others over the years talking about the shortage we have in home care. You know, we've got around 6,000 people on a waiting list and that gets even worse uh, in a winter period like we're in now when we have delayed discharges from hospital. People who could go home, they're healthy enough to go home, they want to go home, but there's no home care for them. Um, and what we're saying is we over the years, again, we've looked at different ways of promoting people into the sector. That work continues. But as you, as you said at the, at the top of the show, red tape is, is slowly, it's miring us. Uh, and we, we can't see the wood from the trees here. What we need to do is take a pragmatic approach to get the home carers we have in the country who want to work more hours. 86% of staff that we surveyed said they want to work more hours, but they're afraid of losing the medical card. They're afraid of losing the work the family that they're getting, yeah. And and so you know if if we, we if we took half of those people, let's eighty six percent said they want to work more hours. If you said just half of the carers employed by our members, that's six thousand people, twelve thousand people employed overall. But if six thousand could just work three extra hours, you would almost clear the waiting list of six thousand people waiting for home care. And it seems like an obvious solution. Um, and the government themselves have admitted that the hard cutoffs they have in the threshold because they don't taper off, it's it, they, they've admitted themselves it's a problem. And so I just think we need to move forward with a solution rather than be cautious. But the situation is, first off, the person that has the, ben- the social welfare benefits that are trying to better themselves by working what they can work. I mean, if they could work that extra three hours and assist with the crisis that we're in when it comes to the lack of personnel, uh, it would better themselves as well. They'd have the, the, the payment for three more hours coming into the household, which might ease another burden on them, which might ease the emergency call to the social well to, to the social worker in question saying I'm stuck for money. So I mean, the whole thing could have a net benefit if we could get through the red tape or just push the thresholds out. Yes, I mean, I, I, I agree with you. I think what we need is a is a common sense solution, right? You know. A feature of home care is that most people want to, at a similar time of morning, a similar time in the evening, and some people want it around lunchtime. Very, very few people require home care throughout the day. Some people do, but it's it's by its nature part time. If you look at the HSE home care staff or the staff employed in the private sector, the part time rate is around 75, 80%. It's just a feature of the uh, of home care, a bit like in tourism, it's seasonal. And, you know, Having, if you're a job seeker, like the example you just went with there, if you're a job seeker and you can only work on three days, even if you only work, let's say, three, four hours each of those three days, you could still work plenty more hours um, in in the week and still work in the full-time equivalent of three days a week, if you get what I'm saying. You know, if you work three hours on Monday, three hours Tuesday, three hours Wednesday, you've only worked nine hours. Yeah. But you're allowed to work three days in total, but you can only work on a specific day. You can't spread out your three-day allowance over the week in order to work part-time. So it's it's a it's a red tape rule which is getting in the way of providing care to people. And, you know, a carer would pay tax on the extra earnings if they work three extra hours. They'd pay into the exchequer. So it wouldn't really cost the exchequer anything, but they're just worried. They tell me, oh, we're just worried about the systematic implications of this. 
And I turned around to them and said, look at the systematic implications of doing nothing. You have a waiting list of 6,000. You've got, you had people waiting on trolleys at the height of the crisis for 900 people around the country. And I said, we should just do this on a temporary basis to see if it works. And I think the country would understand. Everyone would jump, and, jump up and down and say, oh, we need this for every sector of the economy. We could try in home care because we think it's important. We need to make a judgment call mm. as a society. What do we want to, where do we want to actually fund and invest? And this is a way of doing that that doesn't cost the government much, if any money. Well, you see, this can be done fairly quickly by revenue because if you take the social welfare payments or the um, entitlements that they have, they can be controlled by revenue. And then as in, as employers, your members of HCCI, if they take somebody in for that extra three hours or four hours or five hours a week, um, they can pay them as they do through the books. Um, they have their PPS number, so that can go through revenue as well. So the appropriate tax will be taken. Um, but they're not losing the core um, facilities that they have, you know, the, the medical guards and other bits and pieces that they would have, they're not losing those, so they're not, because they're working. But put the whole thing through revenue. Are they just afraid that others will exploit this scheme? Yeah, I, I think what, what, what they say to me is, um, and I have correspondence uh, from the uh, Minister for Social Protection, basically what they say is, is, is two big points. The point one is, we're just afraid if we do this for you, everyone's going to want it. Yeah. <laughs> and I and I just don't think that is a credible way of 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 defending the fact that we could put our existing home care workforce, we could support them to work more hours so they could earn more money and they can support more people, and it helps provide more care. So that doesn't seem to me to wash. But we make all sorts of exceptions. Uh, for bits of the economy we think are important. You know, Lord knows the multinationals get a pretty good tax rate. We've made a choice that we want them to invest here. So we need to make a choice to support our home care staff if they want to work more hours. I don't accept that's a good excuse. The other thing they say to me is, well, you know, you just need to pay staff more money uh, and then you'd get more people working and therefore you wouldn't have this problem. And that, it, that, that flies in the face of the fact that most people are part-time, 80% of the staff are part-time. And therefore, if you paid part-time staff more money, they would work less hours because if they, if, if they worked the same amount of hours for more money, a lot of them would start losing some of these social welfare benefits that are key supports to them, like the medical card, like the working family payment, which are tied to the amount of income you can earn. Mm. So we're saying it's it, the, the social welfare system, which is designed and should be designed to promote work, is actually disincentivizing work in home care. And what we're saying is there are some unique circumstances in home care that make the approach they're, they're taking counterproductive. And they, and they should look at changing that rather than just trying to defend themselves. Oh, this is the way we've done it. I'm not out to attack them. I'm not out to attack the government. I'm out here to try and promote more home care for people that need it. Well, the situation is, I mean, we've had many a conversation here about the amount of money that the HSE are paying to your members and the amount of money then that your members are paying to the staff from there. It's a business uh, after all as well. Uh, whereas we've had some uh, community groups that are running uh, home care facilities uh, like we're talking about and they're giving, they're getting the money from the HSE, but they're giving a larger portion uh, to the staff. But then that's the chicken and egg situation and that's for debate for another day. So it is, but... Uh, at this stage, Heather Humphreys or somebody within the department has to look at this. But I can see what they're looking. They're not looking at the carers of the 6,000 people on the waiting list uh, for home care. Uh, they're looking at the next person to come around the corner and say, ah, 
builders we wanted, hairdressers we wanted, teachers we wanted. You know, it's it's, it's just it could be a cascade, and they don't know how to deal with that because they're they're not equipped to deal uh, with something like that. Yeah, and I think I think get out ahead of it. You know, um, if if the government took a position and and you know let, let, let's say the minister got up there in the doll and said, listen, I'm going to make a decision here to make an exception for home care. We're going to see on a time-limited basis, because we haven't called for this for all time. What we said is, let's try it. Let's try this for three months. Let's see if it alleviates the pressure in home care. Let's see if it alleviates Mm -hmm. the pressure on emergency departments, on our hospitals, on the 6,000 people waiting for home care. Let's see if it makes a dent on that. And if it did, I think most people around the country would go, fine. You know, and if, if hairdressers and builders and et cetera start asking for it, I think most people go, well, hold on. Let's just see if this works in home care first. Um, but this is quite unique to home care. Not many sectors of the economy are by their nature part-time, and home care is. And until we get to a situation where less care is provided in hospitals and more is provided at home, which could lead to a systematic change in home care where it's suddenly – you know, round the clock, there's a lot of hours so people can have a lot more full-time work. Until that happens, and that requires a much longer conversation, let's launch a care in the future of, of, of healthcare. Until we reach that point, it's about how do we maximise okay. the home care resources we have? How do we maximise pay for carers? And we again, we can have a conversation about travel time and, and, and higher rate, rate to pay for carers, which HCCI supports. But right now, what we're looking at is Every winter we go through the same thing mm. of hosp- delayed hospital discharges. Every every year we're looking at increased w- home care waiting lists. Let's put an end to that cycle and be bold and be a bit imaginative about how we solve the problem. Well, let let the minister or any of her, her officials or somebody in the Department of um, Finance or DFARS or otherwise, uh, let they be one of the 6,000 um, people waiting uh, for home care or a family member of those people waiting for home care and walk for 24 hours in their shoes and they might just uh, do something fairly quickly. Joseph Musgrave, CEO of HCCI, the Home and Community Care Ireland. Thank you for joining us uh, today on the programme. Quick commercial break. The hairdressers, they want VAT left at 9% next. Galway Talks, in association with Tesco. Click and Collect allows you to collect your order whenever suits you. Now, that haircut uh, that you went for and the whatever it's the hairdressers did for you, um, the VAT rate on it currently is 9%, uh, but uh, very shortly indeed it's going to go up by another 50%, up to 135 because the hairdressing services are included in the same VAT band as the hospitality sector and it's set to see its VAT rate increase uh, to 13.5% uh, from 9% on the 1st of March 2023. I'm joined uh, by Laura Murphy, who's the owner of Hairspace in the Lisbon estate, just uh, beside us here, and she joins you on the line today. Uh, Laura, good morning to you. Hi, Keith. How are you? Good morning. I'm good. Thank you for joining us today on the program. Can I just ask you, the difference, it's a 50% increase in VAT. What would it do to a salon like yours? Oh, it, it would devastate it, really. You know, um, at the minute I'm looking, I, I need to employ more people. Um, but I'm kind of reluctant at the moment because I don't know if we can afford to. Um, we have so many rising costs um, or, or energy bills at the moment. At the moment, for an example, are up 200%. Um, and I know there is the energy support scheme, but that's not available to a lot of people. I know I myself don't qualify for it. Um, so, yeah, it's it's really tough. And it's very technical, so it is. And you can't very well 
put tur- to you know put that extra four and a half percent onto uh, the customer? Can you? Well, well, it's hard. You know, I mean, we, we're very we build relationships with our clients, so it's very different when you would go in and. I don't know, like do your food shop, for instance, and you you come out and you say, oh, God, that's that, that's more expensive. You know, it, it's really I suppose it's it's an awkward position to be in when you're there with your client. You know that they themselves are struggling with the cost of living and you may have no choice but to put that cost back on them. Um, and again, it would, it would increase the cost to them then. So it would uh, from there. And again, it's very it's very hard because, I mean, um, in the business you're in, it's 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 high end business that you're in, and the costs are high. And you said that staffing costs are high as well. And, yeah. And, and there's only a finite amount of money that somebody can pay uh, to get their hair done. That that is true. Um, and you know we do try and keep things as low as possible. Um, I don't really know how things, you know, if the government don't step in and keep the VAT at 9%, you know, it's definitely going to see salons close. It's going to see um, salon owners have to reduce hours. Um, The salon industry employs uh, 25,000 people. Um, It's a very female-orientated industry. Mm -hmm. So there's an awful lot of females in the industry. Um, it, it, it's, it's, I, I just don't know. You know, I'm, I'm new to business myself. I only opened last May. And with, since my opening in May, I have seen already four uh, cost increases from different suppliers and that. So, I mean, you know, when I worked on my business and setting my pricing, I had it all based around not, not expecting these, like, Surprises huge, come in, huge yeah. increases in costs. Um, so, yeah, it, it's it's really hard, really, really hard. And what are the main challenges of facing it and the cost of electricity? Because, I mean, but hair dryers, you, that, that would be a major cost as well. Hair dryers, water, yeah, you know, there's a lot of energy used in hair salons. Um, I, I What I personally find myself is that I do need more staff. Um, but we would reinvest a lot of money in education and we, we employ um, young hairdressers and we fully train them. You know, it's not subsidized. Um, we've seen increases in minimum wage this year as well, which is another huge um, expense to us, mm-hmm. um, especially when we are putting the money into um teach these people and, and get them the education and, and pay for their courses and fund their their whole apprenticeship. Um, so that, to me, would be what I'm struggling with the most. I need more staff, but I don't know, can I afford it? So then you're working to make the, the business viable. You're working all the hours that you can. Exactly, exactly. And my team are working, you know, the extra, extra, you know, they're trying to do the job of what would normally be two people doing. While keeping the same level of luxury for the client, you know it's it's tough. You see, Laura, because you're 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 in there with the hospitality industry, and the hospitality industry are shouting, um, you're all in the same vat band, so you're yeah. in the hospitality sector. Now, they're they're a fairly strong lobby group. You're a fairly strong lobby group as well. Yeah. Uh, but it's a matter of getting, either getting it over the line, or else getting it in such a way that it doesn't affect you, or that there's some kind of a an agreement come to but I mean the VAT rate at 9% Catherine Martin appears to be certainly for the tourism sector she appears to be in favour of leaving it at 9% now she's a senior cabinet member 
So she maybe can get this over the line. But then if a few more ministers come on board, it might be left for another year at uh, the 9%. Yeah, well, um, I suppose I can only talk from my own industry. Um, I suppose with hotels and that I heard someone say lately and it kind of stuck with me, um, busy periods, they can up their prices. You know, if we have a busy weekend, we can't charge double the price for a haircut. Um, So, yeah, uh, it would be fantastic if it can stay that way. Um, But let's let's, um, hope that, you know, the minister would reconsider and keep it at the 9%. Yeah, and the situation is, I mean, you would have weddings coming into as well, but you've agreed a price, I take it, with the bride uh, and, yes. and, and, the, and, the, and the wedding party as well. So you've, you've agreed a price going back to May when you started, the clients that you would yeah. have brought from wherever you were to um, the hair space in Lisbon. So you've agreed all these things and then these prices are fluctuating and catching you off offside. Yeah, no, definitely. And and even at the moment, um, I am currently working on my pricing for 2023 because, as I said, I have had substantial increases in the last few months. Um, but I've been holding out because I want to wait and see what happens with this VAT rate um, because I want to keep it as little as possible. You know, I, I don't want to... Um, you know, at the end, of, you know, I care for my clients. I don't want... And I know what people, the cost of living is doing to people at home. So I want to keep, if I do need to increase, I want to keep it as minimal as possible. Yeah, but you also put a business plan together when you started in May and you had accountants and everyone else looking at it and you've come up with a business plan, but that business plan has got a shot in the arm of perhaps the guts of uh, 12% at this stage. Um, And that, that, that fat is not in hairdressing. No, definitely not. So thereby, um, that's where the problem is. Oh, oh definitely. Um, it, it's you know, it's there's such fine margins in hairdressing. You know, I I, I don't think people realise the cost to run a hair salon. Um, you know, I done a lot of research myself before I opened the salon, and it shocked me. I suppose I naively, when I was an employee, thought, oh, sure, haircut, you're getting whatever for a haircut. You know, the the energy costs, um, the supply or costs. You know, product. there's so much product used. Um, it, it it's an expensive, you know, game to be in, if I'm honest. But it's it just. It, it's just ridiculous. Like if this vat goes up, it's going to disproportionately affect poor members of society and smaller businesses. You know, you're going to see people can't go and get their hair done because they won't be able to afford it. And you're going to see smaller businesses suffer the most. Well, you see, that, that is the difficulty. And But you've put your neck on the block and you've borrowings and you've leases and you've mm-hmm. staff and you've... I'm not being negative, Laura, by the way, today, but I'm, I'm being practical. And if, if the 9% is is left as it is and it gives you another 12 months to, to get the to get this, the ship stabilised and get the business stabilised and get your 2023 pricing in and get your staff in and all that. If it gives you a chance to do that, I don't know why they're not doing it. I, I don't know either, but I, I, I'm really hopeful it will. You know, um, I just think the minister just needs to think about it and like realise how detrimental it's going to be. Um it's also going to drive people into the shadow econ- economy. Um, when COVID hit, it's seen a huge rise in people doing hair from home. Um, it's only going to push more and more people to visit home hairdressers where their government won't see any taxes from that. Um, and yeah, it's just... Yeah. 
Somebody yeah. said, just a couple of comments coming in, Laura, today. Keith, uh, don't feel bad if you have to. Tell Laura not to feel bad if she has to pass on the VAT increase onto your clients. It's the times we're in and people uh, will pay regardless as they will want to look stunning from there. Uh, Keith, the present reduction in VAT rates for hairdressing uh, was not felt by the customers. Now the goalposts are changing. Uh, Keith, I also feel it would be correct to uh, leave it at 9% for one more year. Not for Laura, but for everyone else as well and us, the customers. So there's a there's a bit of yin and yang in that one, Laura, so there is today. Yeah. So all you need to do is yeah. get it. Come here to me. Um, is it your birthday today, by the way, I'm being told in the headphones? It is, yes. You're not going to, I won't ask a lady her age, but um, <laughs> Zoe that works with you over there, she called us <laughs> today to say that it's your birthday. <laughs> today. Thank you. Uh, we have to do these things. Yeah. Zoe is not getting a lunch today. <laughs> yeah, but well, what bothers me? I'm, I'm bothered. I am, I'm worried now because you said there when I started that I'm going to kill her. So we get out <laughs> quick. Make a run. Make a run for some work quick. Zoe. She's not getting a lunch break today. <laughs> it's okay. That's her fault. That's your fault. What are you going to do? To, forget the vat right now. What are you going to do? Um, now what are you going to do for your birthday? Not a whole lot. Not a whole lot. Chill out, I think. John, could we, could we organise a bottle of sparkling water? Could we, can we afford that? We can, yeah, we'll drop it. Um, <laughs> yeah, we, we'll, go to, we'll get your bottle of sparkling, gold with sparkling water delivered over to you today. Try, try and enjoy it. Now you're saying Fiji water, whatever Fiji water. Obviously, it's a young person's drink, but anyway, so there you go. I'm not, not young any longer. Listen, Laura, you keep strong through this campaign. Enjoy your birthday today. And you can, Thank you. You can give uh, Zoe a bit of a slap on the neck there. And uh, thanks for joining us uh, today. And somebody else just texted in there. Happy birthday to, to Laura uh, from Becca Lally, listening in Belmullet. Well, good morning, Belmullet. How are you there? Send us down a weather um, report from Bell Mullet today, please, if you don't mind. Uh, Keith, this uh, caller said, wait for this one. We have sorted the outer bypass or the ring road. It's all sorted. Just sorted now. Keith, flying cars have been tested in Nevada. They're on the way. They're powered by food waste using a flux capacitor. And there is a new manufacturing plant opening in Athlone. So in a few years... Roads will be a thing of the past. Already they're tearing up roads in China and replacing them with gardens and canals. And they're going making these flying cars not alone. Flux capacitors. And there's a new manufacturing plant opening in Athlone. So there you go. Flying cars. But what's up? John, can you do some work on a flying car for us for tomorrow morning's program, please? Yeah, I know. I can't say that to the person that sent it in. They were... Kind enough to send in a text, so we can't we can't make assumptions like that, John. But we need to find uh, out a little bit about the car. How would it say a flying car outside? Jerry Murphy's after pulling up in a beautiful vehicle. I must say it's white and there's a horse in the front of it. Don't know what brand that is, but he'll tell me uh, soon enough. Uh, but how would that car take off? Is it vertical? Is it like Back to the Future? Will it be? Oh, stop it, John. He said it gallops. Yet to come at the programme, Jerry. just uh, look at um, motoring today for us. We're also indeed looking at St Bridget's Day. Have you memories, by the way, of making 
uh, St. Bridget's Crosses because I do from the rushes. Uh, but have you memories of making them and how did you make them and how did you bind them together and did they stay together and did you put them up on the wall and did they go brown? Uh, that's all to come. And also that invitation to uh, President Joe Biden uh, to come to Galway. There's two invitations gone to President Joe Biden to come to Galway. So that and more between now and 12 midday. It's a Wednesday morning. We're with you right through until 12 midday. A very good morning to you. You can get us on 086 38 33 55 3 with thanks to Rationale Windows. In association with Tesco, find our award-winning Irish ranges in store and online at tesco.ie.